Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. This morning we are in season of Advent. It's week two of Advent. And in church through Advent, what we decided to do is that we are going to Um, preach through the lectionary readings for the season of Advent. So if you're unfamiliar with what that means, there is a a church calendar that has a three-year cycle that runs year A, year B, and year C. And for every Sunday, there are readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, and the Gospels. And over that three-year cycle, you as a community read the entire Bible, together. So that's sort of what the lectionary is. But because there are different seasons within the church calendar, Advent being the beginning, each of the readings are sort of connected to the season that we might find ourselves in. So we we start in Advent, which is all about um, the coming of God. We're waiting for God. Then we enter the season of Christmas, you know, like the 12 days of Christmas, that's part of the Christian calendar. And the season of Christmas is all about God with us. Then it moves to Epiphany, which is all about God for everyone. And then usually we move around into Lent, which is preparation for Easter. Then we have Easter, then Pentecost, and then ordinary time, and then you go back to Advent again. So it's like this three-year cycle. If you've grown up in more traditional churches, you might be more familiar with that. Um, And you might have had like all of the readings read out through the Sunday service. Um, We're not going to quite do that today because it's actually a lot of Bible. Uh, It really is, isn't it? Not too, I was going to say too much, but it's a lot. Um, It's a lot. And so, um, (laughs) and we don't know what, well, not that we don't know what we're doing. Oh, no, we're not, no, but I'm being honest. (laughs) I have, number one, never been in a church that's preached the lectionary, and number two, I've never really done it myself. So, you know, we're figuring it out as we go. Um, but we're, we're in the season of Advent, and so our, our passages of Scripture for this Sunday, and so any church that's preaching the lectionary on this Sunday will be reading these four passages all around the world, whether they're Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or anything in between or mashup. Um, these are the same texts for everyone. So our texts are Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, Psalm 85, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 8 to 13. I don't know who put this together, and I don't know how they decide which bits to skip. I haven't done that research, but there are bits that they skip. So anyway. Oh, I know, we could get the board with the readings and the hymn numbers. And the hymn numbers. Um, 2 Peter 3, 8 to 15a, and Mark chapter 1, 1 to 8. Um, and so there are four readings. I'm not going to read them all this morning. I'm actually going to just read some, a part of Isaiah 40, Psalm 85, and a little bit of 2 Peter, and I'm going to leave Mark out. But if you would like to read those yourself today or this week and sit a little bit deeper in those passages, you'd be more than welcome to. I think I put all the passages for the season of Advent in the church newsletter that went out um, earlier in December. So there's a common thread that runs all through these passages and it's the common theme 
of Advent, really, and it's the idea that we're waiting. We're waiting for God. And in each of these passages of Scripture, we get the sense that things are not as they should be, according to the people. Like, life is not turning out the way the people expected. Things have gone wrong. They don't know where God is or what God is up to, but they're waiting for what God has promised to come true. There are questions around, like, where is God? What is God up to? Because from our perspective, we can't quite see what God is doing. These, for anyone who has walked with God for any, even a short length of time, are similar things that resonate with our lives. We sometimes wait. We know the promises of God. We know, we have a, a deep thing in, in, inside each of us as humans that we know what life should be like. We don't want life to be full of suffering and pain, either for us, for those we love, or for this world. And yet so often our lives have elements of suffering and pain that we know are at odds with God's hope for us and our world, which is peace and love and mercy and joy. And so we often find ourselves sitting in between the hope of what could be and the reality of what is. And there are times when we feel this, you know, kind of very tangibly in our own lives where we're acutely feeling like we're waiting for something ourselves, whether it's, um, you know, something to be healed in our bodies or our, our hearts or our souls, whether we're waiting for someone we love to come through a really difficult season of life, whether we're struggling with things that are going on around us, whether we're just actually looking to what's happening in the world and feeling the gap of the way we know things should be and the headlines we're seeing on the news, that we're sort of tangibly in touch with this idea of, God, <laughs> what are you up to? So often we have like a memory of, of history, of, you know, of, of how things have been. And we also can sometimes be in touch with this hope of how we long for things to be and we find ourselves sitting somewhere in the middle. This kind of space between memory and hope, this kind of space between the history and the promises of God, and we find ourselves in this in-between place. And each of these passages of scripture come out of people who are sitting in that space, the in-between space, the space of longing for God, but the reality of sense not knowing where God is or what God is up to. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 40 first. And for, for many of us, this will be quite a familiar passage. And I want to say as we read this passage and talk a little bit about it, that whenever we enter the first testament of scripture, whenever we enter the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible, we have to take our rabbi Jesus with us. In so many ways, we have no business reading the Old Testament without Jesus sitting right beside us. 
Because Jesus was able to read the Old Testament in a way that he knew, absolutely knew, that God is a God of mercy, forgiveness and love. But sometimes when we read these Old Testament texts, that's not the message we receive. So we must read these alongside Jesus. These are ancient texts. They are texts written in a foreign ancient language and we need to treat them really carefully and to like to not just assume we can pick them up and kind of like just understand them first read. They're, they're deep and complex texts. And in particular, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the most theologically profound and like literary works in the Old Testament. It is a profound book. Um, it was actually written across a time period of 200 years. So while in our Bibles it's just known as the book of Isaiah with the assumption that the prophet Isaiah wrote it, he didn't live for 200 years. It's not written by one author. Scholars of Isaiah can recognise that there are three distinct voices in Isaiah and they will often call them Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 3. And they actually span 200 years. And so... That, that's part of the context of us picking up Isaiah. Um, the first chapters 1 to 39 are most likely written by the prophet Isaiah. Um, at the time, um, like at, towards the end of Judah's sort of, you know, living in its land. And when we hit chapter 40, it's 50 years after Judah has been in exile in Babylon. So Judah has been in exile from their land for 50 years. This is the where is God bit because they had been forcibly removed from their land by an occupying force. And for 50 years, they've been living in Babylon and asking God, where are we? And where are you? And what are you up to? And what are you doing? And what about your promises? And are you going to take us back home again? God, you say these things, but here we are, living in occupation in a foreign land, refugees of war. God, where are you? And so into this context, we, we encounter a people languishing and lost, far from home and hope. A people living in a foreign country. And God's voice comes to them in Isaiah chapter 40, and he says, Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort them. A messenger is calling out in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make a straight road through it for our God. Every valley will be filled in. Every mountain and hill will be made level. The rough ground will be smoothed out. The rocky places will be made flat. Go up on a high mountain and announce it. Shout the message loudly. Say it out loud. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, your God is coming. The Lord and King is coming with power. He rules with a powerful arm. He has set his people free. He is bringing them back as his reward. He has won the battle over their enemies. He takes care of his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those 
that have little ones. Comfort, comfort my people. Your God is coming. 50 years might feel like, is God coming? But the prophet comes and says, God is coming. Make a way. He will come. And then the prophet starts to go on to talk about how their God is going to come. And this is where we need Jesus with us in interpreting what the prophet is saying in light of what we know about Jesus who reveals to us the face of God. So the Lord and King is going to come in power and he's going to rule with his powerful arm. Who is the right arm of God? Jesus. So when we read this, we have to know that the kind of ruling that's going on in this is the kind of ruling that Jesus does. What's the kind of ruling that Jesus does? Meek, merciful, gentle, kind, faithful. Jesus is going to set his people free. He's going to bring them back as a reward. He's going to win the battle over the enemies. Who are the enemies? Not flesh and blood, not the Babylonians, not, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not the Persians, not the people. Who are the enemies? Death, despair, the grave, hopelessness, fear. These are the enemies we know that the right arm of God is going to win the battle over. There is a picture here of a very, very strong and powerful God. But that God could use their strength and their power in many different ways. They could use it to punish and destroy, to lay flat and to just wreak havoc. But that's not the picture we get of how this powerful God is going to use their power. What's the power for? To take care of the flock like a shepherd. To gather the lambs in his arms and carry them close to his heart. To gently lead those who have young. That's what the strength is for. Not to destroy the enemies, but to rescue those who need rescuing. To comfort those who need comforting. To be with those who need present presence that's what the strength of God is for that's the strong God we have a picture of God's strength is used to rescue not to destroy that's what Jesus teaches us Jesus teaches us that that is the heart of God and it's foolishness that's why the New Testament talks about it's foolishness and weakness because what is the human response to anything that goes wrong Attack, revenge, punish. You don't have to look very far in our world to see that playing out in horrific ways right now. You know, Hamas does something bad to Israel, horrific and terrible. What does Israel do? Destroy Gaza. What is Gaza going to do? Like we end up just in these cycles of violence and destruction and terror and fear and death. That's what strength looks like to the world. What does strength look like to God? Comfort, nurture, gather, carry, 
protect to set free. Foolishness to the world. Imagine if Israel forgave Hamas. What kind of strength would that take? What kind of strength would it take for Hamas to forgive Israel? Much stronger than nuclear weapons. That is the strength that God is talking about. Forgiveness, tenderness, love. That's the God that Jesus reveals. The God whose willingness to die at the hands of his enemies and forgive them with his last breath rather than defeating them and punishing them and enacting revenge. That's the foolishness of our God. A God who chooses forgiving love over punishment. Jesus reveals to us the the God who is a forgiving father who will not rest until their children are come home. Jesus reveals a God that is the shepherd that chases the sheep and will not rest until all are gathered into his arms. Jesus reveals and talks about God as a, a chicken who just want, like, what, a, what, a, what an animal of strength, the chicken. I mean, the chicken is such an animal of strength. But God, that's, what, that's how Jesus talks about God as a hen who longs to gather the chicks under his arms. That's the picture of God that Jesus gives us. That's the picture of God that Isaiah gives us. Our God is coming. Your God is coming in the midst of all that you need God to be. But don't be surprised if that God comes with gentleness and nurture. Don't be surprised if that God comes and swoops you up and carries you close to his heart in the midst of all that you are going through and all that you are suffering. That is the God that comes to us. That is our God. That is what Isaiah shows us in the midst of, where are you, God? God who is coming to rescue, to comfort, to care. And so we turn to Psalm 85. Again, people who are wondering where God is. Our reading says, Lord, you you were good to your land. Past tense, (laughs) you were good to your land. You blessed the people of Jacob with great success. You forgave the evil things your people did. You took away all their sins. And then in this gap in the reading, we actually skip in the reading verses 3 to 7. But verses 3 to 7 are verses of lament and crisis. They are words when the psalmist is crying out like, God, you you did this, but where are you? Like everything has gone wrong. You're basically doing nothing and we don't understand what the heck, God. That's verses three to seven. And then verse eight picks up again in the present and the author of the psalm says, I will listen to what the Lord, God the Lord says. He promises peace to his faithful people, but they must not turn to foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. God's truth and faithful love join together. His peace and holiness kiss each other. 
His truth springs up from the earth. His holiness looks down from heaven. The Lord will certainly give what is good. Our land will produce its crops. God's holiness leads the way in front of him. It prepares the way for his coming. Verse 9 says that his glory may dwell in our land. This is the longing of the people in Psalm 85. We know the goodness of God. We've seen it. We're in this place where we're wondering, where are you, God? What's our longing? That the glory of God would dwell again in our land. We want to see your glory, Lord. And then verses 10 to 13 kind of unpack what God's glory actually looks like. This is really helpful for us as we read scripture, that if we ever wonder what, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, what does it mean? We can turn to Psalm 85 and learn exactly what the glory of God means. The glory of God is God's truth and faithful love joining together. It's God's peace and God's holiness kissing each other. This kind of, the the verses here in this psalm are like really uh, powerful and emotive words that kind of are describing this collision of God's character, this collision of all the goodness of God. And as this, you know, kind of like the, all these things collide, it's like the beauty and the goodness of God rains down upon the land, like in showers of mercy and grace and goodness. It's kind of like, as I was reading this passage, I was thinking of, you know, how you often at the beach can have two waves coming together from opposite directions, and when they meet, they collide. That's the picture that Psalm 85 is giving us of the glory of God. I've got a picture up here of um, a wave doing just that. It's, it's by Ray Collins, who's a local um, ocean photographer. It's this beautiful, he calls this one the tree of life, but It's this beautiful picture of two waves colliding together and the spray raining down and catching the light and being the mercy and the goodness of God. And so if we unpack these verses a little further, Chris, if you put the next slide up. This is what the psalmist is talking about. God's truth, the word for God's truth is the word emet which means faithfulness, reliability, and sureness. It does not mean correct. So when we're talking about God's truth, we're not, uh, we're not talking about like God is correct. It's not correctness. It's like the idea of if you uh, were an archer and you let the ar- arrow fly and it flies true, it hits its target. That's what this word means, true, truth. God is sure. God is faithful. God will always hit his target. That's what that word means. So God's faithfulness and trueness, God's reliability and sureness, it collides with faithful love which is the word has said. Loving kindness, God's mercy, God's goodness. 
So God's faithfulness collides like that wave with God's loving kindness and the shower of glory covers the land. The psalm goes on to talk about God's peace. The next wave that's coming is God's peace, God's shalom. The shalom of God means safety and completeness and everything is right in the land. It's the welfare of all things. It's health and prosperity of all people in the land. Shalom is all encompassing. It's not just peace like I feel good in my, I feel peaceful in my heart. God's peace is like encompassing all things. All things are whole. All things are safe. And this idea of God's peace kisses God's holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the the word holiness in Scripture, I was often told that the idea of God's holiness meant that God was so holy no one could come. It was like basically holiness meant untouchability. Like God was so holy he can't look upon sin. Like God is too good for us is basically how I kind of was raised to imagine what the word holiness is. That is not at all what this verse or this word here means. This word is is the word sedek, which means the justice and righteousness of God. It's not the I can't touch this God. It's the God in the midst of all things bringing justice and rightness. It's God's ethics actually at work in the land. So God's shalom is pashing God's justice and there are fireworks happening and the whole land is caught up in the explosion of justice and peace. This is the picture of God's glory that Psalm 85 is giving us. It's an amazing picture. If you want to know what does the glory of God look like, it looks like that. It looks like God's faithfulness and loving kindness joining together and his peace and his justice setting off fireworks in the land, blessing raining down. And then it goes on to say, God's truth springs up from the earth. It's like a, it's a great picture, this. Like the truth of God is springing up from the earth and God's justice is leaning over from heaven, peering down. And so as that's springing up from the earth, it's like God's also leaning down and it's meeting in the middle. It's this picture that God's glory is all about God and nothing about us. We actually have no part in that. There is nothing, we don't do anything except sit under the wave of God's beauty. And thank God it's not up to us. But this is a picture of what God's glory looks like on our earth. This is what we're waiting for. This is what we're longing for. That our lives, that our families, that our communities, that our nation and our world would actually look like that. Because that's the heart of God for things. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're waiting for. And the really interesting thing about this psalm is that the the tense in this psalm is a little bit vague, which tense in the Hebrew language can be pretty vague anyway. They weren't, they didn't use tenses kind of like the same way that English does. And so we read it kind of like this is written in the present tense, like God's truth and faithful love are joining together and God's justice and peace are kissing. 
But as I was studying this passage, there are translations that talk about this in the past tense. So like God's truth and faithful love have met together. God's peace and justice have kissed. And there are other translations that put this in the future, as in God's truth and love will be joined together. God's peace and holiness will embrace. And I don't know what to make of any of that, except that I know that we follow a God who was and is and is to come. And so is this picture of the glory of God complete? No, no, it's not. We, don't, we know that. But have you seen little moments of this before in your life? Have you seen little pockets of this where you just have known in yourself, things are good, things are right. I can say I've seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. I can. Moments. And I know I will see more moments of this to come. Will one day this be the picture and the truth once and for all? That's our faith-filled hope. That's what we're praying for and hoping for. And the Psalm 85 finishes with this kind of roadmap towards the fulfillment of this vision of God's glory. How is this going to come to pass? The psalmist says that God's justice... God's ethics are going to lead the way towards this. God's ethics and justice prepare the way for this to come to pass. And in some translations of that very last verse in Psalm 85, they say, we will, like this, our feet will be put on the road of God's justice. We will walk in the way of God's ethics. We have nothing to do with all of this happening. All of that is in the goodness and the mercy of God. But how do we prepare the way for this to come to pass? We allow our feet to be sure on the path of the ethics and justice of God. We participate in the goodness of God coming by living the way that God would have us to live, by living God's ethics out now and every day. And so our last passage for this morning is 2 Peter chapter 3. One of the things to be really mindful of um, when we read the New Testament, um, certainly the book of, like after the Gospels, one of the things we really need to, I think, kind of have in the back of our mind is that the early church um, really believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. So the early church was sort of birthed in, in a kind of, you know, eschatological imminence. Like God was going to come back. Jesus was coming back really soon. So there was an urgency around certain things because they actually believed Jesus was coming back real quick. Now, you can read certain, you know, things that Jesus said and you kind of get why they have that 
kind of understanding. Like there's some strange little verses where Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until these things have come to pass. You know, like, and he's talking. So it's like, oh, oh okay, we're not going to die before. This is all going to, all this good stuff that Jesus is going to, we're not going to die away before this happens. So that's like why they thought it was urgent. There's this strange little encounter with um, Jesus and Peter at the end of John and Jesus is talking to Peter and Peter turns around and sees the disciple following and he says oh what about him Jesus and Jesus kind of says to Peter well what's it to you if I want him to remain alive until I come back what's that to you and so I think there's these like little sneaky hints that the early church had that they thought Jesus is about to come back any minute so yes we're spreading the gospel and we're getting on with it but it's all going to happen really quick it didn't happen it, it didn't happen like they thought. <laughs> Newsflash. And as sort of time unfolded, we see the, the people sitting in the kind of tension of, well, wait, wait a minute. We kind of thought that we were told this is how it was going to happen. And it's not happening the way that we thought. Like, God, we thought you said this, but it's, it's, it's not come to pass. And so there are elements of um, confusion and disillusionment that I think we can resonate with in some of these early you know, New Testament writings. Questioning, a kind of disorientation, like what happens when what you thought was going to happen doesn't happen and you're kind of wondering what's going on. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I have felt like that with God and with many things. A sense of, wait a minute, God, I thought you said it would be like this. It's clearly not like that. So I don't know, what do I do when I feel like the ground beneath me has moved and I don't know where I find myself? And especially the books of 1 and 2 Peter sit quite solidly in this kind of confusion and disillusionment. And so we read the author of 2 Peter writing, Dear friends, here is one thing you must not forget. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. I mean, what a sneaky, like, you know, like, they're trying to reimagine why we don't understand what's going on. And I think this is like brilliant on the part of the author because they've just got everyone's like what's going on we don't know what's happening we thought well you know a day is like a thousand it's quite it's, I'm, I'm impressed the Lord is not slow to keep his promise he is not slow in the way some people understand it <laughs> thanks instead he is patient with you he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. Instead, he wants all people to turn away from their sins. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And what kind of people should you be as you're waiting for this God whose day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day and you think he's being slow, but really he's just being patient? You should live holy and godly lives. Live like this as you look forward to the day of the Lord. Live like this as you wait for the waves to crash and the glory of God to be real in the land. That's what we're waiting for. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Godliness will live there. Glory will live there. 
All this is in keeping with God's promise. Dear friends, I know you are looking forward to this. So try your best to be found pure and without blame. Be at peace with God. Remember that while our Lord is waiting patiently to return, people are being saved. People are being rescued. God is not slow. He is being patient. The author of 2 Peter points people towards holding on to the promise of what we're waiting for in the midst of disorienting reality, where things are not what we want, things are not as they seem. All things will be made new. Hang in there. Good things are happening in the waiting. And why is God patient? Because he is committed to having no person, and I would even dare to say no part of creation, miss out of the glory. That's what 2 Peter says the hope of God is. All will know this. None will be destroyed. That's the patience of our God, that God will be patient and wait until all know the glory of God. This is one of the radical universality passages in the New Testament. It's not only some that God is waiting for. It is all. God is waiting for all. God wants all people to be caught up in the newness that he brings. And these are kind of hopeful words for us who are still waiting 2,000 years later. (laughs) Still waiting, still wondering, still hoping, still trusting. So these passages speak to us, they speak to me. They speak to us about our reality. What, what, is our, what is our reality? Our reality is in many different ways, personal, national, international, we're waiting. Things are not as they should be. Things have not and are not turning out the way we thought they would, the way we hoped they would for our children, our neighbours, our nation, our world? What do we do in the gap between what we hope for and what we experience? What do we do when God seems slow? Maybe they're being patient, but it just sure feels like they're being slow. We're waiting on a slow God. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. We're waiting for the images that Isaiah 40 and Psalm 85 give us about what God is like and what God is going to do. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for God to set us free, to care for us, to gather us up tenderly, to carry us close to his heart. We're waiting to know the truth about God doing that. We're waiting for everyone to join in. And what do we do while we wait? Well, these three passages give us a few clues. Number one, Isaiah tells us that we can actually prepare the way for this to come. We can straighten paths and fill in valleys. We can make the land flat. 
We can do what we can do to move away the obstacles of God's justice and love and mercy and peace coming. Sometimes those obstacles are in our hearts. Sometimes those obstacles are in our nation. Sometimes those obstacles are elsewhere. We do what we can to usher in the glory of God. 2 Peter encourages us to make peace with God. Sometimes we actually have to make peace with the God who hasn't done what we wanted God to do. We have to make peace, make our peace with God. We have to be able to go to the places where we can say, God, you have not shown up for me the way that I thought you would. I read these promises and they have not turned out the way I thought they were. I don't know where you are or what you're doing. We need to make peace with the God of love, the God of tenderness, the God who carries us, the God who is patient. That can be a hard thing to do sometimes, but 2 Peter encourages us to do that. And Psalm 85 tells us to place our feet in the way of God's justice. What do we do while we wait? We do what's right. We don't punish our enemies. We love them. We don't get revenge. We forgive. We walk in the ways of God's ethics and God's justice. We trust that every act of mercy, every act of forgiveness, every act of generosity or service or kindness, everything we do in love is actually part of the great unfolding story of divine friendship in creation. We're a part of it. We're a part of the divine work of creation, salvation, and eternal life. Everything we do, the ripples of our actions, however small, radiate out forward into a long future ahead of us. As more and more people and communities and all the earth and all its creatures are caught up in the divine collision of God's truth and faithful love, the embrace of God's peace and mercy, showering the whole world with glory. When I think about how we blessed Piper this morning, what do we trust as God's people? That every act of love and kindness to that little girl radiates out in her long future that she sees through our actions what the love and justice of God looks like. And then she passes that on to people we will never meet and they will see the love and the faithfulness of God embodied in the life of Piper. And that's caught up as they pass it along to more and more and more people. That is what we trust in. Big acts, small acts, everything ripples out into God's long future of bringing our world towards that wave of glory that Psalm 85 talks about. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.